Happy Monday. Happy Monday, Joe. Um, yeah. How was your weekend? It was okay. I, I lost my voice, uh, so I couldn't talk the whole weekend. But uh, apart from that, I guess I, that's probably good for the rest of society. So win-win. <laughs> but um, you're here now. You're here. Your voice came I'm out. I'm here. The voice is okay. sort of coming back. Yeah, it still yeah, sounds yeah. like a crap. But anyway, how was your weekend? It was very good. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, just had a nice, fun weekend. Watched a movie, did some shopping. What did you watch? Things. Um, I watched a movie called The Taste of Things. So this, like, you know, French language fancy movie. So. French fancy French movie. Are there are there such a things as, like, unfancy French movies? Like very. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> But in the spectrum of French, you tend to err more on the fancy side or on the uh, no, no. I, I watch I watch a lot of trashy Belgian TV. So there you go. You hmm. can ask Andy Petrella about that. <laughs> uh, I will. I think we'll see him. Uh, we'll see him shortly. Yeah. yeah. Um. Cool. So. Thanks to everybody showing up. Uh. Yeah. yeah Matt and I. Uh, I think we kind of want to do these. Uh. <laughs> at least once a month or some some weird interval like that just uh just matt and i so we started the show so yeah yeah yeah, exactly and then apologies uh my voice is still shot two weeks into this so i uh don't even know what what to do at this point well i'm on i'm on medications now so that's great um hopefully this clears up soon so gotta be on a speaking tour next week yes yeah 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 how many days straight are you going to be speaking i mean you're it seems like you're almost on tour where you're going to be in a country for two days and then go on to the next country and go on to the next region. <coughs> yeah, what is it? France and Switzerland and uh, Saudi Arabia on this one. Then I guess I'm going back to France um, middle of uh, March. So it's, it's super fun. Hopefully this crap is all cleared up by then. But yeah. anyway, if not, then I'll just, uh, I don't know, just show slides and um, do like text-to-speech or something like that. And that would be kind of cool. So, well, I caught it. I caught a talk um, with a Venkat Supernarium. He uh, is a really popular software engineering architect and uh, thought leader. Um, probably my favorite architect in the world. But anyway, he gave a talk in Salt Lake City, um, and uh, sorry, saying hi to people there. Um, gave a talk in Salt Lake City on Friday or Thursday at UJUG, uh, Utah uh, Java Users Group, which I um, like to go to once in a while, and. And he his whole presentation was just him typing in a text editor. And was was he talking at the same time, or was he just typing? He was uh, well, he's talking and typing at the same time. But I thought that was pretty cool. I'd never seen anyone just type what their main points are live. I thought that was actually a really cool and engaging way to um, do a presentation. So. Yeah, and he has really good design around it as well, as I recall. Like he just types the code in or types in, and and somehow he's very, very rehearsed, and it just comes out extremely well. I don't think I could pull it off in the same way. Maybe with enough practice and just like imitating his style. Yeah, yeah, I've thought about incorporating some of it, but it's um, yeah, Venkat's definitely one of the best speakers I've seen uh, in in any discipline. He's just very engaging. Agreed. Yeah, he's yeah. awesome. So, but his his whole talk was on uh, basically the trade offs between uh, you know microservices. Uh, modular monoliths and the monoliths. So, and this is interesting. This brings us to the topic I think we want to discuss today, which is: I don't think microservices are going away, but I think there's a lot more skepticism now than there was a couple of years ago at the height of the microservice craze. Mm. Um, I think at the time, because Netflix and Amazon were making microservices work really well, there was the idea of pizza box teams. And so every young startup, every small company, every you know enterprise Fortune 500 company with a really ambitious software team wanted to adopt microservices. And then at some point, it's like, wait, maybe this doesn't make sense for everyone. Maybe we're not Amazon. Maybe we're not Netflix. And you actually published an article very recently about the modern data stack. And I think there are some parallels between the modern data stack and microservices. Yeah, let me. Well, I'll, quote, I'll probably misquote more more appropriately some of the things Ben Cat was saying in his talk, but he. There's uh, a lot of consulting and microservices and just architecture in general and monoliths. Um, and he said, like, was it 65% of the companies he's seen are um, maybe more are actually doing microservices? But he said most of them are doing it wrong. Um, most are doing microservices because they think that they should do that without any good reason for it, right? So um, I'll get into why this ties into the modern data stack in a second. But does that sound familiar? 
Um, oh, absolutely. Let's yeah. see microservices. But he, but he said, you know, <clears throat> uh, depending where you're starting out, that's absolutely the worst idea possible. It adds a bunch of unnecessary complexity. The monoliths typically are the way to start. Um, you know, if you're, especially if you're a startup, your main thing is going to try to make money and get product market fit. The notion of introducing microservices early on in a startup, unless there's a competitive advantage to it, it's absolutely silly um, and will cost you a lot of extra motion. You could spend trying to do things like sell product and get customers. So yeah, I think the other thing we've seen again and again with both microservices and just data, data analytics in general is that small startups tend to build each piece on their own because that's what Google and Amazon. Yeah, do. forgetting that. At the time, the stuff didn't exist, and a lot of that stuff where they're building microservices, you can just buy off the shelf. And it doesn't mean you want it to be off the shelf forever, but like in those early stages where you're just trying to get product market fit and grow as quickly as possible, building it yourself creates a lot of extra friction, and you often end up with something much worse than the off-the-shelf yep. solution. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was his point was just, you know, understand the trade-offs, right? I mean, I think we'll get into the notion of cargo culting with respect to data stacks in a bit. Um, but you know, his whole point, and I think I wholeheartedly agree is that just don't do things because you read a, a blog post and because everyone tells you it's a good idea, understand your situation, the value and outcomes you're trying to achieve and figure out the easiest way to get there, not the hardest. Exactly. So, and then there's yeah. a notion once you start with a monolith, you know, you can break it into a modular monolith, which is sort of microservices, but still monolithic. And then, you know, gradually graduate towards microservices where it makes sense but you know his whole point is just starting with it is almost never a good idea but as you said <clears throat> most people are starting with microservices and doing a terrible job at it which obviously keeps consultants like him very busy which you know it's, it's awesome uh you know keeps consultants like us busy in the sense where there's a lot of uh trained wrecked architectures out there that need later need refactoring and you know so we're so thank you for for not thinking too hard about this um so well, it goes to something else we see a lot, which is quite often we get called in to do a road mapping engagement and to design a future path for data warehousing and data modeling and, you know, all the core data analytics. And then we discover that what the company really has is an organizational problem. Like they have very talented people, but, you know, they're working on other aspects of responsibility and such. And I think with microservices, maybe it's the same kind of thing where, you adopt microservices, but you actually still haven't set up your organization correctly to really benefit from them. And oh, if yeah. you listen to things Jeff Bezos said in the early days, I mean, there's the API manifesto, there's the idea of the pizza box team, there's the two-way door. Like for for him at Amazon, those organizational principles were actually probably more important than the microservices concept itself. It was more about how you organize the teams that are going to build out those services than anything else. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is just classic Conway's law, right? So you're going to build systems and architectures according to the way that your organization communicates. And um, <clears throat> this is, I think, the inevitability of it all, right? So you know, we'll talk a bit what this means for data teams. I think there's a lot of parallels, but I would encourage people to read the book Team Topologies to really understand um, just the, uh, um, you know, how organizational layout uh, manifests itself in architecture. Um, if you are a very siloed, monolithic culture, um, throwing microservices into it is probably going to be a very unnatural fit. Now, of course, there's a uh, re reverse Conway's maneuver where you can have an ideal architecture, then reorient your teams to that architecture. And that definitely works. Um, but that also means you got to be willing to reorg, right? So. Yeah, and I think another thing we see quite a bit, um, and you can tell me your own experiences with this, but uh, with microservices, again, the idea is that you have these separate teams that are maintaining services. So what happens with a small, really small startup? Well, in many cases, the entire startup is a pizza box team. In other words, you can feed the entire startup in the early days with two pizzas. And then what happens is you're trying to maintain 20 microservices <laughs> instead of having separate teams maintaining them. You actually just get massive sprawl and there's not enough mental bandwidth to maintain all the stuff that needs to be maintained. And you certainly can't build new microservices because you have no bandwidth to do it. So you're just struggling to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. And same thing. In exactly. Data. Yeah. Same thing. And so uh, Carl says uh, organizational design is key and many organizations don't rebalance their orgs for how business strategy and needs change. They never rebalance their org for a long K. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, I mean, it's hard, right? I mean, 
because <clears throat> yeah, it's um, I hate to reference that book. Who moved my cheese? I hate that title. It's stupid. You're not a rat in a maze, but um, sometimes you are. I guess depending on where you work. Um, to be fair, but yeah, I mean, rebalance is hard, and organization structure it sort of happens implicitly, um, and it takes probably the will of the, the CEO, uh, you know, to, to make that change. Um, I can't post comments here because for some reason, LinkedIn comments aren't showing up, but I'll read them. Uh, Matthew Mullins, what's up, Matt? Um, says, <clears throat> or asks, can you talk about how data products might parallel some of the same issues um, uh, that appear with microservices? I'm sort of ad-libbing there, but um, yeah, I'll take a stab at this. I think that when you, data products, I think at least as we're manifesting it, um, there's several definitions for data products. They tend to, take the one um, that Jamak Dagani uh, proposes because that's more in line with the um, theme of the microservices uh, and data mesh, which is where she got her inspiration from um, you know, domain-driven design of microservices. But I think there's, there's a lot of parallels to this. And I think going forward, what you're going to see is, um, you know, if, if the notion of data products, I'm not just talking about like, there's, I think there's a uh, the kind of the Walmart version of data products where people are just saying, oh, um, I'll just share this table or view with you and call that a data product. Yeah. Right. I, I don't think that that's what she meant by that. Um, you know, this is it's it's because you're still dealing with a centralized uh, model at the end of the day to serve uh, these data products <clears throat> and share them. But but I think that, um, you know, as software and data teams begin uh, sort of melding together, uh, I think this is where you're going to see the uh, true intersection of um, or the true uh, notion of data products coming uh, to the foray using a microservices architecture. What do you think that? Keep talking yeah, yeah. because my voice is about to start going. Oh, out no, too, totally so. fine. I mean, I, I tend to agree with. So so here's the thing I've seen with data product definitions. It, it appears to me that over the past maybe two years, uh, vendors have started to co-opt this notion of data products. And they've turned it into what you've said, where it's like, oh, you share this table. And the table is really good and it's high quality and that's a data product. And if you think, who's who's like the you know biggest in tech, like the, the most iconic product person of all time? Probably Steve Jobs, right? And to me, this is like saying in the original Mac that, you know, your enter key is going to be a product and the monitor is a product and the power switch on the back is a product. And there was some truth to that, but but it was holistic, right? Like everything had to work together and it had to yeah. be an experience. It wasn't just, it's not just like the, I don't know, finger, the camera on your iPhone that's a product. It's everything working together. And that's where I think if we're thinking about data products, it really needs to be a holistic experience where if I'm a business user all the tables integrate very seamlessly and the data model is very coherent and consistent. It's very easy for me to find answers that I'm looking for. To me, uh, that's a, a version of data product that I like much, much better. And it's not that these vendors are making bad tools, but you know they're kind of choosing a definition of data product that suits their ends and their sales cycle, which I get. But I think we need to make sure that we're as an industry steering this notion in a good direction and really thinking holistically about what we present to people. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of data product washing out there right now. And I think it, it, the term is being misappropriated. I mean, again, it's, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder, but at least according to, um, you know, the data mesh definition of it, the four pillars, right? Data ownership by domain, data as a product, self-service data, and federated computational governance is the uh, four pillars. So, you know, I, I think the last one, federated computational governance is still like the, uh, the missing link that just um, doesn't exist, but I, I, I you know, the, the parallels between um, the data products and, and microservices are definitely um, there. I mean, that was the whole notion behind data mesh was taking the software approach and applying that to data. Um, Cause you know, she's actually a software person. She's not a data person, yeah. right? So she yeah. looked at data and she's like, why the hell do you do all this stuff? Like there's a, there's no interoperability between tools. We're going to get yep. into this in yep. a bit. Um, right. Um, very few standards. So everything just cobbled together against some centralized monolith, right? So how do you expect to deliver um, something that, uh, you know, isn't the same thing you've been doing for the past 20, 30, 40 years, which is a centralized reporting, um, you know, kind of centralized everything, right? So I mean, that was the notion of it. But 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 that means you're operating in a monolithic environment. And, and um, yeah. so you, it would be... So at best, you're, you know, if you, if you take domain-driven design and bounded context, um, and that notion, right? At best, you're doing what I, what I again, what I call the Walmart version of, of data products. It's yeah, it's good enough for a lot of people, probably. 
Um, but you couldn't really truly do a, a, the equivalent of microservices with it, the impossible by definition. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's funny too, because we had Bill Inman on the show. What, what was that now? Was that like three years ago? Oh, yeah. He's been on a few times. Yeah. He's been on a few times, but we were kind of, he was sort of debating the idea of data mesh. But then at some point he, he said, you know, <coughs> data mesh for me, I don't have a problem with. I just feel like even if you have the data mesh, so you have these different teams managing their data and sharing it, you need a curated version, which is the data warehouse. And so that was, in a sense, he didn't say use the term data product, but he was basically arguing that you have these engineering teams working together, but then someone can still have this holistic curated experience off of that data because there's a yep. team that makes sure that it's presented correctly to the end user so they're not just on their own wandering in the wilderness. And, and to me, that's like you go to, I don't know, a really well-built website, say, and there are all these microservices behind the scenes. But I, as a user, don't want to see those. I don't want to see any of that. I just want to see an experience. And that's that's kind of his notion, I think. Yeah, is the way, you know, the implementation details shouldn't matter at the end of the day, right? Exactly. So using yeah. a data warehouse to serve a data product, as long as it uh, meets the criteria, right, then sure, whatever. Um, Lee has a question here, Lee Colin. Um, uh, now that I'm, well, it's more written at me, but I'd love your thoughts. Um, now that you're deep into writing your new book on data modeling, uh, what are your thoughts on the feasibility of um, subject matter experts or small data teams adopting a data modeling techniques um, with reasonable success? He says, in his current job, his team, three data engineers, find it difficult to carve out the time to untangle the nasty mess of weeds that is their data warehouse while also juggling stakeholder buy-in, uh, BAU, um, et cetera. Um, and, and so I, I think my answer to this is... Um, you know, I was actually writing about this this morning. It's it's really, uh, you, have, you have two spectrums of, of data modeling. Um, you have intention and precision. Mm. Intention means, are you intentionally modeling your data or not? Um, and then how precisely are you going to model it if you are intentionally modeling it? The opposite wouldn't be true. You wouldn't unintentionally model data in a precise way. That would not make any sense. Um, and then the other one's fast and formal versus, um, or fast, uh, and relax versus, uh, you know, slow and, and rigorous, right? So you can move fast. And I would say, given the fact that you can't carve out the time to tangle the messy, uh, messiness of your weeds, and I, I suppose um, you have your answer, you, you probably will never get to it. Um, but these are the realities you need to understand before you, uh, I think, embark on data modeling. And the other part of it is, if you're inheriting a, a data warehouse, I was actually um, reading a lot of articles from Vencat, actually, um, yesterday about data debt but more in software, right? So his whole notion is if you're um, reading data from, say, legacy systems, right? And his, his notion of legacy is anything that has been put into production. The moment it's put into production, it's legacy. It's legacy. Wow. He's right. Yeah. I mean, right. I tend to agree. Yeah. Yeah. But his whole thing is like, there's a whole rubric, right? So like, how bad is the data? Can you get away with just not using it, right? Um, could you build something in parallel and, and, and so forth? But I would say, given your constraints, um, if you find it difficult to carve out the time, either find a way to make the time or just deal with the, um, the mess you have and, I don't know, take up a hobby like drinking a lot or something, I don't know, um, to ease your sorrows. So, But I mean, I think along with this data debt notion comes something else that we like to emphasize, which is that ideally the software teams that are developing the backend systems that will feed analytics down the line are stakeholders in those analytics and are involved in a modeling conversation that's not just for production, just getting it into production. What are your thoughts on that? Like how do we incentivize software teams to work with the downstream consumers as they're designing things? So well, that, that goes back to the organizational part, right? I mean, yes. It's, it's, yes. It's just, I mean, it's as simple and as hard as that. I don't know if there's a, what would the other answer be? Yeah, yeah, no, agree. You know, yeah. I mean, how do you? I mean, you can try to automate this, but I, I think at the end of the day, you know, there, there's, you know, and you definitely have automations like data contracts. But again, like working with your upstream providers and software teams working with their upstream providers, if they're if they're having to deal with, um, you know, third party data, I mean, that's, I, I, I don't know, it's a complicated question. If you figure this one out, by the way, that's like, uh, you know, it's one of the holy grails. I think we're all trying to figure out, but. It's hard for a reason. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, ideally, data contracts become kind of like CICD, right? Where CICD should be both a tool and an organizational principle where your kind of DevOps ops side of the house 
is directly communicating with the software side of the house as commits come in to determine whether they get merged or not. If you yeah. don't have that, then it's just a, a, kind of a, a tool that's not going to serve a whole lot of purpose, I think. Well, I mean, it's the same as testing. I mean, in right. software, right? Exactly. So unit testing progression. But it also reminds me of the uh, notion of interface. Um, so if you've written Java yeah. or C or anything, then it's like Scala, you, you yeah. have an interface file that literally sets the contract. You can fill out the implementation details, but these are the set of, say, private or public methods you're going to be using in your, in your um, you know, class, for, for example. Right. And that's, that's what it is. You can't violate the contract. So, you know, but I mean, it's interesting and back to the <clears throat> notion of data products. It's just, it's interesting just like, and we always joke about this madhouse data is basically five to 10 years behind where software is, but all the stuff that software people have been doing for a while, data people, you know, discover and repackage it in the data, this data ops, um, you know, all this, all this stuff. Data so, ops, ML ops, like the, all the all these movements are closely related and trying to build on top of software. I think we're still struggling in some cases to define how we're transferring software principles into data, even now. It's a bit of a, uh, um, uh, yeah, it, it's hard. I mean, I, I even saw an email today with like, you know, somebody's writing about, you know, unit testing and data. And I'm like, you know, if you're writing functions, like, why wouldn't you ever unit test that? But I don't know. It's, it's weird. Um, yeah, it's uh, and Lee responds uh, nicely answered. I, I'm Irish, so the access to drink is not a problem. Cool, go for it. Because um, I, uh, if I'm in your situation, I, uh, I don't know. You got to figure it out, or you just, you know, I mean, it, it, actually, it's it's interesting. I'm going to be um, like, who was it? Gordon Wall hit me up yesterday, um, or was it Saturday? And he's like, hey, I got a thought experiment for you. Like, what would happen if um, you know we inherited a, a data stack that nobody there was no existing team, no documentation, whatever. What would we oh, do? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we're going to actually do a podcast on this whole thing uh, later this week for the five minute Friday on my uh, other part. But um, yeah, it should be interesting. And then Bart, uh, what's up, Bart? Um, I think he's going to be at Skid. He, he writes, the organizational aspect is the hardest part. Um, explains why so many organizations are struggling with data mesh adoption to um, too much change. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, this leads us into our next topic, uh, the modern data stack. And it's demise. I would say that the same issues that, that plague any sort of uh, transformation, I think that they actually um, played out with the modern data stack and it's uh, sort of, I guess, now official demise. So, yeah, yeah. Where, where do you see the, let's call it the modern data stack big bang? What was the event that kicked it off? I have a very specific idea about that. Why don't you go first? I, I need to rest my throat. I, actually, there are two. So, y you mentioned one of these very specifically. <coughs> in your uh, article you published on Substack, I think over the weekend, that Redshift, I think, was kind of the first big salvo for most people in the modern data stack, right? That's the first thing they encountered. And as you, I, I think technically BigQuery came first, but uh, what's funny about BigQuery, you mentioned that it was immature at the time. And even in, I wanna say it was 2015. 2015, I was working with both Hadoop and Teradata, so, you know, modern, big data movement, and then very traditional MPP data warehouse system. Sorry, sorry, Bill, for misusing the terminology, but you know, that's how what the vendors would call it. Um, and then I knew about Redshift, like, hey, Redshift, SQL engine, it can do a lot of what Teradata could do. And then I, I looked at BigQuery on Google's website, and I'm like, what What even is this thing? Same. What does this do? I don't understand what this is. Even though it was a really great tool, they weren't doing a good job of marketing it. But well, that was, was classic Google rate. back then. Classic Google back then. Even now. And now they can't market <laughs> to save their lives. It's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, then the next thing that happened, though, there was a lot of evolution. But to me, there were kind of two things that really kicked off the, let's call it the modern data stack craze. And I'm not saying the ideal ideas aren't useful. What I am saying is that it became kind of a fad too, right? Like it became a very, very compelling idea that was attracting a lot of funding and such. And I think, it, I think it was COVID, as you said, a lot of money floating around some, suddenly. And we saw people who got COVID loans for their companies who also happened to be investing as angel investors. I don't think that's a coincidence. We, we both know people who did that at the time. So there was a lot of money flowing around. And then the Snowflake IPO in September 2020. That was a big biggest, one. What was it, like $3.4 billion raised as that went, came to market and the stock price shot up and people made a lot of money very quickly. And so I think venture capital was looking for the next big thing. There was a lot of money there. 
And that's what they settled on. Like, okay, Snowflake is big. How do we create the next Snowflake or yeah. the next thing that will attach to Snowflake? Like, how do we make money off of this movement? And it really took economic changes and the uh, it, the large language model craze to kind of finally end that phase of, of venture capital fad, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Snowflake was definitely the big event. Oh, and I, actually, it's funny. I was doing the, uh, literally taking the uh, snow core pro or snow pro core uh, certification uh, during the IPO. So I just wanted to get the damn thing That's over with. So right. I get back and watching yes. the, uh, to, uh, put some money into the IPO and it you know, made money, but um, I was like, you know, you get this thing over with here. But yeah, that was definitely a pivotal moment. Yeah, you, you have a big worry. Actually, you're right. It was 2010. I think it uh, was launched. Um, <clears throat> and like you, when I looked at it, I was like, I have no idea what this is supposed to do. You can't do joins. Um, like it has a weird dialect. And so, you know, but I think you're absolutely right, though. It actually maybe might have been um, the first, uh, you know, serverless uh, analytical platform. that. They wouldn't call it a data warehouse back then. I remember uh, Jordan Degani telling us that, like, um, yeah, if you tried, because he tried recruiting people onto the uh, BigQuery team, I think, and if you call it a data warehouse, people would just like run the other direction because it's like nobody wants to work on that at Google. They want to work on um, you know cool stuff. But that was a uh, based on Dremel, I think it was right, exactly. the internal analytics yeah. tool. Um, but Redshift was like the, the, the first like d described as a data warehouse, you know. Uh, offering um and then yeah you're right i mean there's a period for years where you start seeing tooling around um you know that redshift ecosystem specifically uh you know five trend and snowflake comes out and does a bunch of uh, redshift takeouts yeah right exactly. and data takeouts too yeah. but yeah. redshift was our primary target because it was like i remember being in those conversations early on snowflake sales team would be um you know knocking on all the redshift customers doors and saying hey do you want something easier and better and they killed it. Yeah, I mean, because Redshift was was and is a great tool, but it you know it's there's a management burden to it, and there's sometimes a lack of maturity to the tooling around it, and stuff like kind of solved those problems, and so it became the de facto standard for a long, long time. They could start from scratch, though, right? I mean, the yeah. notion of like yeah. separating compute from storage and having micro yep. partitions was a new idea. Um, what was it? Redshift was built on Postgres eight, I think, in Paracel for the MPP platform. Yep. So it's exactly. like you have that that uh, legacy burden in there. Not that it's a bad thing. Redshift is a great product, but Snowflake started from scratch being a cloud native tool. And but what's interesting now is you know just the ecosystems have spawned around all these different uh, platforms, right? And yeah. So even uh, Snowflake doesn't call themselves a uh, data warehouse anymore. They call themselves a data cloud, right? And same with uh, you know, Databricks has their own notion of this. And same with Azure's got Fabric and. AWS has whatever they call that. So, it's... well, and it comes back to the fact that AWS's ultimate success is not Redshift or S3 or EC2, although they make money off of all of those things, especially compute storage. But it's being a platform. And Matt Turk, I, I, maybe it was even a year ago, he had an article about how to be a really successful unicorn startup, it's not just about hitting that valuation of a billion dollars. It's really about yeah. being a platform more than anything else. Because if you're only selling one tool and you only ever sell one tool, it's really hard to ever justify a valuation of above a billion dollars, I feel like. Well, we're seeing this right now. I mean, companies that, you know, raise at valuations, you know, all these unicorns are suddenly, you know, there's a really good article that um, I posted on my Substack um, from a blog called Investing 101, which is exact opposite. It's actually pretty advanced stuff. But he talked about, um, I think it's Kyle Harrison is his name. Anyway, fantastic blogger, but he wrote about just the markdowns that are happening in valuations. And you're talking like 60, 70% markdowns from uh, basically the ZERP days, uh, which means that if you're you know, at a billion dollars valuation, you might be able to raise a valuation of 300 million, maybe. Yeah. Right, because yeah, it depends yeah. on things, you know, things that didn't matter back then, revenue, um, right, money. Uh, Back then, it was all GitHub stars, a uh, number of logos you're collecting, and all of a sudden, it pivots to having to run something resembling a real business. So, Yeah, and the logo thing was interesting, too, because I think there is real value for a business in having big-name customers, but often the logo collection turned into more like a trading card collection, right? These weren't real engagements or real relationships. It was just like some analyst in some dark corner of the company is using the product, and they get legal to sign off on using the logo. There you go. You can, now you're worth $3 billion. 
And unless you, now you need to actually show that you're really engaged with that company and that they're at your conference giving a talk about like, this is how X product changed our data yeah. practice and made us better for customers, something like that. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we, we, I mean, especially back in the heyday of all this stuff, 2020, 2021, I mean, I remember you and I would just go for walks I and mean, we talk all the time. In fact, uh, for the audience, this is kind of how the Monday morning data chat started was Matt and I were just, uh, <laughs> yes. recording the same conversations that we had just walking around cause we're dorks. Um, but, yeah. but I think we'd often commiserate, like, why is it, why is it that these companies, um, many of which are making less money than our company, why are they valued at like hundreds of millions or maybe a billion dollars? Right. It was bananas. And when we looked at them, we're like, okay, the feature sets aren't, I mean, they're, they solve a problem, but it feels like they're all features. Um, you know, and it's hard to turn feature sets into companies. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. Right. And so I think we, and because of the position we were in doing podcasting, I mean, and, and writing, you know, arguably one of the first data engineering consultancies in the, in the U S um, you know, we got inundated with uh, requests by companies to partner with us to look at their products and review them and all this other stuff. And, um, you know, it, it, I wrote in the article after a while, they stopped taking these calls because it was all the same stuff all the time. There's literally no differentiation. Everyone, I, I can't even tell you <clears throat> how many, uh, you know, data integration companies I'd seen, right? Um, all like, oh, we're, 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 uh, we're going to be like five trend for the modern data stack. It's like, that already exists. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, the, the my other comment would be that in general, I, I feel like it's hard to build a unicorn startup B two B, and it can be done, right? But what are your biggest like unicorns? You know, high value companies. They they tend to be B two C business to consumer. So Google, you can build up an audience, a user base of hundreds of millions or a billion people because you have a really great tool and now you suddenly have this huge advertising target audience. I feel yeah. like the activation energy to build a B2B business, to build a full platform is much higher. Like the actual concrete investment to go from nothing to something that businesses have to have is really tough. And Snowflake is kind of the exception in that sense. Um, if you think about Amazon, they did it by building a B2C business first, right? They build a really solid core of retail. And then off of that, they built this B2B business that's just massive. But like the scale that was required to become Amazon is just astounding. Like the number mm -hmm. of machines, the number of data centers, the number of personnel. Warehouse, so, yeah. all that yeah. stuff, logistics. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's what it takes, right? But, um, you know, or, or if you're NVIDIA, right, you're supplying all the chips to, yes. you know, the AI craze, which we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, I think... Although I'll say that's an <coughs> exception that proves the rule as well, right? How did yeah. NVIDIA get its start? Well, they're still a major, major consumer business. And that fed the business for a long time. Well, it started long in video games. Exactly. And it's still, they're still big in video games. Oh, yeah. And Bitcoin and, you know, and, and yep. I, I, I like their approach. Their, their motto is like, you know, we're all like 30 days away from going into bankruptcy or something like that. So they're always super paranoid, which I like. Yeah, um, yeah. they don't get complacent. So, um, yeah. But back to the modern data stack. You know, like again, Tristan wrote that article. I think it dropped last Monday or something like that, or whatever. But um, I mean, that that sparked, a, I think, a lot of um, discussion and eulogies and um, and so forth. And I think it's it was good. I, I was glad that he did it. It's, it's a sign that I think we're just ready to move on to the next thing. And and in his words, it's you know moving on to just analytics, which I mean. Um, sure. I mean, that's what, at the end, that's always what it's been. Um, but you know, it, it, as I wrote too, I mean, it, it did its thing at one at the end. I mean, it accomplished its goal. Yeah. So there's not much to like say that, you know, it was a total waste of time. I mean, you know, if you want to go back to the good old days of before the modern data stacking buy software that way, go for it. Um, I, I urge you to go build that time machine and, and do that to yourself. Um, Question so. is, are we drifting back in that direction, though? Because well, think about AWS. I mean, yes, there are all these individual tools you can buy there, but you're still dealing with AWS. It, sometimes it feels a lot like Informatica or something. Well, I mean, I think we always joke that in the end, everything becomes Informatica. Yeah, yeah. Right, because at, at the end, you, you have you, the monolithic, uh, um, you know, centralized uh, um, platform is, is sort of where things inevitably go back to. Now, this contradicts what we were talking about, data products and mesh. But that is the inevitability. Um, it just it happens all the time. Give me an example where it hasn't. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's the famous quote about bundling and unbundling. I'll, I'll have to look it up to get it right, actually. Maybe you know it off the top of your head. Uh, <coughs> I don't. But yeah. Bundling and unbundling, yeah. But Elvin, shout out to uh, Veronica. She posted uh, something on LinkedIn. Tech changes exponentially while orgs change uh, logarithmically. Yeah, I would, I would say that that's uh, very true. Um, logarithmically at best, too. I think there's like an asymptote in terms of a change you can tolerate, especially as you get bigger. Um, yeah. But then the logarithm, that the curve has a sort of asymptotic behavior as well. So what, what did you find the bundling on? Yeah, yeah. Thing so about? this was... Jim Barksdale. Um, and let's see, the, the quote basically is there are two ways to make money in business, bundling and unbundling. And so, uh, yeah, that's, we, we've seen the unbundling. Now we're probably going to see more bundling again. Well, let me ask you this though. Yeah. In the unbundling era, I mean, how many of those were actual businesses that made money? Yeah. that's Right. Because he, he also said right. that yeah. businesses that, you know, making money. I'm like, how many of those actually became real businesses that made money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, often the unbundling phase is a build out and then those companies get acquired, right, to actually start making money in the future. That's kind of what happened with cable companies. You had all these different channels pop up and then get aggregated into these mega monoliths. And then those kind of got dismantled by Netflix. And I'm sure we'll see more phases. But now you see more consolidation in the streaming space. Yep, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Paramount's looking for a buyer. So, yeah, you know, that's just, uh, and people are finding that streaming is actually really hard to make money in. It, exactly. I mean, there was an explosion of different streaming options during COVID <coughs> because everyone was sitting around on their couches all day, right? Just watching TV. And so there was an assumption that that could be a very, very successful business. And then we had kind of a, a almost like a 1999 happen for streaming where people went back to work, they had less time to watch, they didn't want to subscribe to 10 different channels, yeah. they canceled half their subscriptions, and stock valuations collapsed, right? Happens. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, on the bundling and unbundling, let's give credit to Ben Stancil. He's the person I heard that quote from. Okay, Ben, and then I know that we had an yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a debate, actually, with, uh, who was it? Ethan Aaron and Ananth Pakaldiri, I think we had them on a, on a show once uh, back in the... Uh, good old days, and they were debating the bundling yes. and the bundling argument yes. too. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, it's funny actually. I, I went back and listened to a few of those podcasts and, and uh, kind of in preparation for the show, and it's it's kind of scary how much we got it right with our discussions back then. Go ahead and listen to it. Yeah. But um, you know, conversations a few years ago, it was like I think we or um, I mean, for the audience, Matt and I tend to be very um, I wouldn't say skeptical, but very um, reality based. I don't think we're, we're not too hot, not too cold, but I think we, we, a lot of the stuff we called out, called out, right. I mean, there, there is a lot of consolidation happening now. There's, um, you know, we called out back a couple of years ago that VCs would be pulling back and, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of casualties in the field and this is exactly what's happening right now. The modern data stack is like, um, you know, the ecosystem just grew too much. And, and as we pointed out, I mean, in every vertical, it was like you had dozens and dozens of companies. Um, vertic each vertical has a natural growth rate, right? Unless something completely innovative and new happens. But you just can't have a sea of sameness and expect that you're going to grow the total addressable market um, that way. That That's that's not how it works. It defies the laws of physics. Um, you know, there's only so many buyers out there. If you're selling to the same 5,000 people and you have 20 different companies doing the same thing, uh, it, it just simply doesn't work. The math does not make any sense. Yeah, let me go back to what I was saying about B2B versus B2C. I think part of what happened in the peak modern data stack craze is that a lot of small companies that didn't have the capacity to do analytics before suddenly got access to it. And so it became, B2B became a bit more like B2C, much larger yeah. audience, a lot more people using Snowflake. The problem is that that wasn't going to be scalable forever. Like at some point, these small businesses started getting the bills and saying, whoa, 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 we have to pull back. Like it's great that we have analytics, but we can't just do unfettered spending anymore like we're doing now. We're going to go bankrupt, especially as you know, our COVID loans have to be paid off and other things. Um, and so I think there is a durable change. I think analytics yeah. will remain much more widespread than it was back in like 2010 or something. 
but you're you're not going to see like exponential ramp in spending in the future. There's going to be a lot more cost control for small businesses continuing to use snowflake. Oh yeah, controls. we see this all the time. Yeah. Well, the other thing is too. It's like you know the question I, I keep asking, and I asked uh, Bill Inman this too. Is like, you know, it's it's funny despite all these uh, progressions and advancements and, and quote innovation in, in the data space. You know, with the uh, quote modern data stack, um, why is it that we're still struggling to answer the same questions we've been struggling to answer for the last 30, 40 years, right? Yeah. Is the data right? Can I believe it? Am I getting value out of it? Probably some other questions, but like those three alone, we failed to crack that nut. In fact, I would say it almost got worse in some ways. Yeah, you mentioned that in your article. You talk about how uh, best practices seem to go out the window and that's you know what happens sometimes with democratization like you you lose those controls at least temporarily you have a new generation of people getting access to tools without training and building out data without data models and that eventually creates massive data debt going back to what you said about Venkat. well yeah data debt for sure and what lee was dealing with too in his earlier comment about like inheriting a stack and it's a big mess it's like um yeah that mess didn't just magically appear, right? It it they, it, it creates it, it's it it just kind of sort of happens over time. Um, yeah, and so that's that's the inevitability of it. Um, and what I noticed, you know, I mean, we both teach uh, and uh, done lots of education in the data space. So wrote a book on it, for example. Um, <clears throat> but I think one of the things I also noticed was just a lack of knowledge about you know prior best practices. Um, that back in the day, you, you wouldn't even question twice, right? You just sort of do things. Um, but then because data got easier to work with, uh, part of it, I think I blame, um, you know, the data science craze and pandas and everything else, like where you just, you know, I, I love data frames. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it also allowed you to do whatever the hell you wanted with data, right? And, um, and then you couple that with, uh, you know, tools that allow you to transform data in any way, shape or form you want. Um, and suddenly became a, data became a very reactive instead of proactive exercise. You're just trying to answer questions um, instead of getting the broader context of what you're trying to do um, for your organization. I think we saw this time and time again. So yeah, I mean, so my, my take is that the newer data tools are just demonstrably better than oh, yeah. data tools of the past. However, the nice thing about data tools of the past is that, yes, it was a huge pain. It was very high friction. But your CTO would go sign a contract with Oracle or SAP or Teradata, and they would deliver boxes to your shipping dock, and you would install you know, this system, this database system. And everyone knew that there were constraints. And so it's like, all right, we have to have a data model because we only have you know, so many terabytes of storage space. If we go over that, we have to start deleting things, and that's going to be a big problem. And now it's really great that everything is so scalable, but it often means that people just didn't think about constraints. And yeah. at some point that becomes a cost problem, a computing problem, and just a sprawl problem. Like sprawl, our human time. minds can't wrap our mind, we can't wrap ourselves around this stuff. It's the, the mess is so massive that we can't make sense of all this data without a coherent data model, which is what your whole point in writing the book, I think. Well, it's, it's one of the root causes of, I think, the, the situation that we find ourselves in right now, where, as you point out, there's endless amounts of sprawl. Um, there's a lack of coherence, or there's just a, a general lack of coherence in terms of understanding data and how it serves the organization. Um, these are symptoms. Uh, but the, but the, one of the root causes, I think, that we've um, lost sight of you know, the art and practice of data modeling. As one example, I would say the other aspect to this, um, and probably my next book, is on architecture. Yeah, um, because you have all these <clears throat> analytical systems that you can just cobble together, but there's no sense of interoperability between these different products. You end up with a, a Frankenstack. Yeah, yeah. So, and and here's the other thing too. Is I, I called it a, jokingly called it a, a Joe's law of a Reese's law of, of architecture and data modeling, but it's like um, at the end of the day, your architecture does dictate your data model uh, just because of the. Uh, inherent limitations of, of what your architecture can support for a physical data model. And so because you cobble together tools first, which is the mindset that most people are in, it's technology first, it's data second. So what, what happens is you start shoehorning in your data to fit um, the systems in which you've uh, cobbled together. And, and 
So there's this, uh, uh, Nassim Taleb actually had a good book called The Bed of Procrustes, um, which is a, a book of a bunch of aphorisms that he, he writes. But uh, The Bed of Procrustes is a reference to an old fable or an old tale where um, there's a hotel with a bed, right? And so uh, at this hotel, instead of finding the bed that's going to fit you, um, he's going to cut off your limbs so it fits the bed. Yes. So, Yeah. It's funny, too. I mean, the irony of the situation we're in with not designing architectures is that there's never been a better time to design architectures around data. In other words, going back to the lack of constraints thing, there are so many options. There's just an embarrassment of riches. And yet we, because we have so much available, we don't think carefully about what we're doing. And there's this opportunity to build the perfect architecture for the data we have and the business model we have. But that rarely happens. We end up just cobbling things together, basically. Well, that's, I mean, that was a notion of the modern data stack, right? Like it was, um, you know, loosely coupled modular uh, SaaS and cloud-based tools, um, which I think inherently is a great thing. But you had people who had no sense of architecture cobbling things together, no sense of data modeling cobbling things together. What the hell do you think is going to happen? Yep. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So now we're in an age, you know, not the modern data stack. We, you know, uh, Tristan um, himself put a, a stake through the heart of that um, vampire um, uh, or, or whatever it is. Uh, um, we're in a new new era now, which I, I think has a lot of eerie similarities to the uh, modern data stack era for the uh, data industry. And and that's, um, quote, AI, a term that keeps resurfacing every few years, like a, uh, a phantom. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on AI right now? That's a good question. So I, I find it very exciting. Um, I think I think the applications of it we're seeing right now are, are not the applications that are going to be interesting five years from now. Um, I constantly see Medium articles about how, you know, I built with AI. I spent three hours and built a business that generates $1,000 a month. Uh, but then if you keep reading, you discover other examples where... Uh, for example, recently uh, an airline was forced to honor something that their chatbot said, something incorrect about oh, yeah. They were forced to honor it, right? <clears throat> and I think we're headed into the trough of disillusionment with AI, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be useful. It means that it's going to take us a while to really get it dialed in and figure out how to yeah. make it useful and safe for businesses. I think right now a lot of the applications of it are extremely reckless. And I think there's going to be a big legal reassessment of how companies are deploying these tools. Legal departments are going to come back and say, wait, you're doing what? Like, you can't have that be customer facing with no checks on top of it. But I I think it is durable and here to stay. Again, it feels a lot like the late 90s, which both of us remember well, where there was all this enthusiasm about the Internet. uh, But very few of the businesses around in that era stuck around. Um, We eventually figured out the Internet, but it took a while. (laughs) I mean, we're on it all the time, but that, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. the utility of it, right? That's yeah. what I point out in the article is even with the uh, modern data stack, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you don't, you don't marvel at the internet anymore. It just is faded into the woodwork. Yeah. Um, you know, and the same thing's going to happen with AI and whatever manifestation it is, um, you know, but, but every, it, it's funny because what I notice is a lot of the modern data stack tooling companies, uh, you know, I noticed it's a big day to London uh, last September walking around the expo hall and I was like, Crap! Every one of you has an LLM embedded in you now, and I know I know your teams. Like I know you don't have machine learning expertise on hand, so you're, just, you're basically just built like a thin wrapper on top of a ChatGPT, probably or OpenAI. Um, but that's not a moat because, as you point out, like when we're talking about what's a product, right? Is a re- is the enter key a product? Um, to, to me, what happens is un- unless you can have an argument that that the introduction of that new feature set uh, grows the total but addressable market or grows the customer base or grows um, market share for you. It, it's simply a race to keep up, right? So you're in this interesting prisoner's dilemma uh, thing where you have no choice, but to like you know, kind of AI wash whatever product you had before, um, but everyone else is doing it at the same time. So again, there's no differentiation at the end of the day. You, you simply like move the goalpost. Yeah, and we've seen so many different phases of product crazes, I'll call them. Sorry, that was not meant to be alliterative or rhyming. But anyway, uh, it was beautiful. So for example, thank you. Thank you. So for example, uh, do you remember when Alexa suddenly 
kind of surprisingly got really big. I think it was like 2015. Oh, I got I got stories about this one. And yeah. it just blew up, right? And then everyone all of a sudden was building Alexa apps. And Techstars, you know, an incubator had this whole like round of we're going to fund startups doing Alexa apps or voice-based apps on different platforms. And then after a couple of years, it turned out that this wasn't all that useful and it kind of crashed and burned. Um, same thing with the Siri craze on iOS devices. It, it became this huge thing and then eventually Siri became useful, but it, it didn't like completely take over people's interactions with phones. And that was the original oh, yeah. proje projection. And that's that's the thing you have to watch out for when you start obsessing with the craze instead of utility. Are you just hacking <coughs> on a feature that's not going to be useful, that's going to fade in a couple of years? And then, you know, you're trying to figure out the next thing to do. Oh, yeah. Like Amazon gave me six years of uh, $200 promotional credits every month because I wrote... Uh, I think probably one of the first Alexa apps back in 2015, I think it was. I got drunk one night. It was just like, I'm going to make an app that uh, I can just ask it what the air quality is in Salt Lake City. That actually sounds I, useful. Yeah, it was. And it, you know, if anyone knows about air quality in Salt Lake City, it's often very, very bad. In the oh, yeah. It rivals Beijing. It's like toxic air. Um, yep. Yeah. So I wrote this app in like probably an hour. Um, figured out the, uh, you know, the, the Alexa workflow, built it in Lambda and then... And that was it, right? So it's okay, let's, let's play with this. And then a few years later, um, a startup I was at, we actually partnered with uh, Amazon Business because the, the application that we had, we felt, okay, so maybe there's an application that we could have uh, for Alexa. Because the idea at the time was Alexa was going to become a conference uh, a conference phone for offices, right? And so that, that was, you know, that was a big uh, partnership that went nowhere because Alexa went nowhere. I mean, we have a mutual friend actually who had a whole company around uh, Alexa apps, and voice apps and like and they pivoted uh, like they do something very different to. now yeah they had to like it wasn't really an option <laughs> and that yeah i think most of the the um startups in that incubator class ended up pivoting or, or closing down at some point because it just wasn't they they jumped right into the craze they thought okay this is the next big thing this is going to be the next iphone everyone's going to be using voice apps and then it just did not materialize. Yeah, the Alexa at the time, I mean, yeah. it was a phone tree basically, right? I mean, like right, literally right. when you wrote the Alexa app, it was a heuristic space. This sort of utterance, I think that's what they called it back then, would achieve this sort of result, right? And so forth. It was just basically, you could use if else or case statements and basically have your Alexa app that way. Um, and you had to say things a certain way. So that's one thing I like about the this generation of large language models is you can yes. sort of put whatever you want into it and, um, you know, out pops something. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of utility there. I think long-term generative AI is awesome. I mean, the, the demo that they opened AI had with Sora, I don't know if you caught that, the one minute 1080p videos, you can just text prompt it and it'll. Oh, I, I read about it. I haven't checked them out. Sick. Yet, yeah. there's, wow. at least it's a demo. So I have no idea how good it is, but like, yeah, yeah. that's ridiculous. Um, you know, so I mean, that's it's just early days too. I mean, it's that kind of stuff, all this stuff right now with like every AI app, like, you know, it has like the star with the other magic stars around it. Like this is sort of like yes. the, uh, like the cheesy animated GIFs that you saw back in the day or like the, uh, in HTML, you used to have, be able to do like the blinky stuff. Um, under construction, code. right? It would always say under construction. <laughs> this is what this feels like. It's like super early days. <laughs> yeah. It's like crap. Um, but I mean, long-term, this is where it's going to be. But again, you know, you're seeing all these startups getting AI funding or AI startups getting funding. And those are the only ones getting it. But even then, you know, if you read like, um, like the information, the, uh, the news outlet, right. I mean, they're saying that a lot of AI startups now are <clears throat> actually having trouble raising more money. Um, cause at the end of the day, what's the, what's the competitive advantage? What's the moat? Unless you're training models. If you just have a, a wraparound, um, open AI, open AI is going to kill you during the next demo day. That's precisely what happened last demo day. Yeah, exactly. And if you think back again to the late 90s, everyone jumped in and wanted to start an internet company because suddenly everyone could do it, right? Like you could just get a book on HTML. And frankly, if you'd done other programming, you could oh, yeah. probably figure it out in a couple hours and have a basic website up. In fact, you could just type some text in and have a website, right? Like you didn't even really need that much HTML to start. And then at some point, people realized, oh, maybe this isn't that interesting because anyone can do it. And Amazon can probably do it better than you can, you know, and eventually Google a couple of years later after mm -hmm. the crash. Well, and it's very expensive to, to yeah. uh, make these models, right? I mean, oh, yeah. <clears throat> the information had another article <coughs> about um, just how a lot of start AI startups are actually trying to get bought right now because they realize for proprietary model training, it's just so damn expensive. 
um, that unless they can raise more money, it, it makes more sense to, uh, to cash out. Right. So it, it, this is a bit of a different story where unlike the MDS, where, um, you know, you and I could make an MDS tooling company, yep. um, for AI, it's like for anything interesting, you have to have a lot of money and a lot of hardware, um, $7 trillion apparently. Yeah. 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 I saw that. That was some Sam Altman wanting to raise $7 trillion to build what a chip company basically, or multiple chip companies to churn out massive numbers of GPUs or something along these lines. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And I wonder if the costs are going to come down at some point uh, in two different ways. So first of all, better, you know, hardware optimization, meaning let's figure out, do we really need full floating point capabilities? Can we cut way down on the number of transistors plus just more competition in the, the chip industry to support AI? I think that might be coming at some point. And second, you know, improved model training techniques, like do we really need this many parameters or can we do it with fewer? I, I just really wonder what the costs of training large language models will look like in say five years. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, what would be calling them large language models then? Uh, exactly. Or will be, we be on to the next thing that's not <coughs> a transformer? Somehow. Well, I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the zeitgeist this year is, uh, you know, large multi-modal, uh, multimodal models, multimodal. right? So LLM, yeah. LMMs, right? So I'm um, sorry, my voice is starting to die worse than it was. Um, actually, back to a question that Veronica Durgan yeah. asked, um, why do we not think carefully and focus on architecture? How can we change this? Hmm. How do we change it, Joe? Do you have thoughts? I don't know. What, what are the first ones? Why do we not think carefully and focus on architecture? Yeah. I think somehow you need a convergence of maturity to understand the history, I, I know history sounds boring, but just understand, you know, the, the history of data and software, it's it's not without history, but also yeah. understand the current things. Like that's how you have mature architecture thinking. It's understanding, you know, what an AS400 was and why it kind of sucked and how we can do something better with current tools. But if you don't combine those two perspectives, then you're probably not going to be a very good architect. Yeah, you got to understand history. I think it, it's... Yeah. I think architecture too was sort of um, done in a cargo cult fashion, especially in the yeah. um, modern data stack era, right? Because I mean, literally, the modern data stack was your architecture as advertised. You know, it's Fivetran, DBT, Snowflake, and Looker, right? So set that up, yeah. and there, there's your stack. I think that's yeah. part of it. Um, you know, then um, so I think there was a lot of blind faith that you know the architecture was tooling. But it's interesting if you read um, books like um, Clean Architecture, for example, right, by uh, um, you know, Uncle Bob or Rob uh, Martin. <clears throat> What's interesting about how he defines software architecture is it's, it's, a, very much, it's a very different way of looking at it. it it's about um, uh, understanding things like DAGs, like architecture should be designed as a DAG. Um, architecture shouldn't you know, go back on itself, for example. It's a, the notions of solid, which are still somewhat controversial, but um, and things like that. like. You know, writing clean, reusable code. Um, these are the more, I, and I agree. These are the underlying principles of architecture, right? And, and as we described it in our book, um, you know, fundamentals of data engineering. I think we had our own thing, which is, you know, at the end of the day, it's about making assessing trade offs and being able to make reversible decisions using loosely coupled, um, uh, you know, systems to achieve a business outcome. It's loosely how we defined it. And this is also how other people define architecture. Like Venkat describes. Yeah architecture as being a, a series of trade-offs um, and understanding those. But I think to her question of like, why do we not think carefully? I think because a lot of, a lot of the hard work was supposedly done for you, right? Yeah. If the, if the diagram is literally in your face, well, you're just going to use that because you want to be a modern data stack um, uh, user, not the other data stack user. Yeah. And you know, there is this perpetual, problem in the tech industry of letting vendors define conversations around architecture yep. and vendors provide a valuable service. They often develop great products, but like if you think about <coughs> Mongo, for example, uh, there's the, suddenly the mean, mean stack, you know, oh, yeah. uh, they, they defined something that was very self-serving instead of kind of asking, okay, where are we useful in, in these stacks and these tech stacks? Mean stacks an interesting one. Tell me yeah, who's that. Yeah. So that was a Mongo, yeah, I know. <laughs> <coughs> Mongo Express, Angular and a yeah. Node. Right? Yeah, and so, it was just like kind of a flash in the pan. It was just a couple of different yeah. technologies that were popular at the moment, kind of cobbled together without a lot of thought. You know, don't think too much about schema. 
just uh, move fast and break things, and then you end up with a big spaghetti code mess of both uh, code and architecture systems. Yeah, and I think the same thing with the modern data stack to a large yeah. degree. It's like, because what, what happened is, I think to uh, your question, Veronica, um, how do you change this? Again, to, I'm going to keep reiterating this, right? And I've been saying this for a long time. I think the biggest challenge that we have in our industry today and that we've had for the past 15 years, really, is things have become too easy. And yeah. there's a giant gap of knowledge and skills to, to fully utilize these awesome tools at our disposal. I think the tooling in the modern data stack is fantastic. I think the tooling in that we have in general today is awesome. Open source, per, vendor, whatever. Um, the issue is, you know, uh, you, you know, you mentioned that uh, um, organizations change logarithmically, technology changes exponentially. From what I actually had a rebuttal, if you bisect these two, that's all. It's just they cancel each other out because that's what exponents and logs do. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, I would say that practices are at best logarithmic and um i don't know what's what's, what's what goes slower than logarithmic matt um uh, uh that's a good question i mean <laughs> I, i'll have to think about it more it yeah how, you're too, but how, how you're comparing growth yeah you're slower rate of change you're just yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah have a constant that i guess divide yeah. by whatever constant you want yeah, yeah and there yeah. you go um <clears throat> but i think that's where our skills are it's like um so if you're if you're at most companies, right, you're expected to start delivering things, and you don't take the time to really understand the tools, the, how to use them, how to architect them in the best way, you know, how to model your data and so forth. So I think it's what we're really suffering from right now is a deficit in um, skills and practices. And I think if we can close that gap, uh, we're going to do great things as an industry. Probably once and for all, getting away from, um, you know, I guess not answering the questions of delivering value. Is data believable? Is it useful? These kind of things. I think I'm tired of hearing those conversations, but that's where we, we are. Um, yeah, it's very important. And I, I think if you think about why cloud is so popular, I was thinking about this, why th there are lots of arguments in favor of cloud, such as scalability and flexibility and rapid deployment. But fundamentally, I think the key ingredient that makes cloud so popular is that it turns hardware into software. It turns architecture into software. Yeah. Deploying an EC2 instance, just run a couple lines of code, and there you go. You can have Lambda functions up in a couple minutes. Um, but the problem with that is that we now inherit all the problems of bad software. And that's where, just like you're saying, we need to go back to fundamentals and say, you know, you can build really sprawling architectures just like you can build a bad code base, but we need something <coughs> better. And we need to take these tools and use them in better ways. Yep. Totally agree. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think the issues of the, uh, no, just because, uh, you know, we put a nail in the coffin of the modern data stack doesn't mean that the issues suddenly disappeared, right? I right, think it's, it's, right. It's, it's, you know, it's like, uh, it's the old saying, wherever you go, there you are. So, um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, what's up, Robert? Oh, I can show comments. Uh, Rob, uh, yeah, he's a curmudgeon like us. Good dude. Um, could agree more somehow that moment when Ben asked us this question on video keeps coming back. That was remember that that video that we did with the uh, Firebolt guys, where Ben, the um, younger guy, and was sitting there um, helplessly watching as Rob, you and me were commiserating about uh, um, tech and everything. So uh, yes, yes, I'm surprised that kid's still in the industry. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is what it is. So anyway, thanks for letting us rant uh, for the last hour and three minutes. Uh, it's been a fun time. Um, Hopefully it's been a fun time for the audience as well. <coughs> Surprised my voice lasted this long. Yeah, I, I am too. Yeah, you, you need to get well. <laughs> I do. Go sleep for three days or something. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm going to have jet lag, so that's not going to help too much. Um, yeah, so what do we have coming up, Matt? Um, let's see. Skiers and data at the end of the month. Well, actually, it's on March 1st. So that's the big thing on my radar right now. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to be in um, Paris uh, a few days earlier. Uh, you're going to be in actually uh, France as well, but somewhere else. So Yeah, yeah. I'm planning to be in, uh, I'll, I'll kind of be near uh, Switzerland. I'll be in Switzerland just hanging out for a couple of days, and then I'm going to go to Lyon after the conference. So oh, nice. Anyone, yeah. anyone wants to meet up there in the week after, uh, the kind of that first week of March, send me a message. Yeah, and I'm in Paris. We've got some, uh, um, I guess, meet up at... Um... Uh, something related planned. So if you're around, great. Hit me up. And then Skid, uh, Skid, I don't know why I said Skid. Um, skid, Skiers and Data. It's probably 
tried to say two things at once. That's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, thanks to Chris Tab and the elite crew for putting that on, by the way. I know it's a lot of work. Um, so yeah, kudos, uh, especially this, uh, I'm shout out, give, give a shout out to Severina, who's um, with elite, she's uh, the driving force behind putting everything together. So awesome time. Um, yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, just a bunch of dorks in the mountains and the Swiss Alps. Uh, um, pretending to have a conference i'm kidding um so and then um yeah and i'm off to uh saudi arabia after that to go uh speak at leap and uh deep fest so that's gonna be a big one then actually i from what i heard actually going back to france back to paris uh, a week later uh, in the middle of uh um march so anyway should be fun nice yeah we'll, uh you're Paris. never gonna get back to mountain time again it's just be permanently stuck on european time I like Europe though. I mean, it's funny because I get more talks in Europe than I do in the States. It's kind of weird, but so it goes. Uh, kind of becoming like the David Hasselhoff, I guess. Of a, so just more popular overseas in here. Do, do you but, have a talking car? You probably actually do, but maybe not quite as cool as. I don't know. I kind of, you have kind of like the crappy version, right? You have Siri in your car, <laughs> yeah. in your iPhone. I guess is that what kid is? Probably. Yeah. It's been a while since I've, I'd, I'd have to go back and look. <laughs> So yeah, I wish I had Night Rider, but anyway. Um, well, cool. Then next week, uh, I think we have uh, Jean-Jos Pirin on, on the show. So he's a uh, um, really awesome. Um, he's also French. So we're going to have a good conversation uh, by talking about data mesh architecture, all this kind of fun stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think the week after that, we don't have anything planned. Maybe we'll just do like, maybe record something at Skid with a bunch of people. And, uh, I think that sounds that up. That'd be good. Yeah. 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 So anyway, thanks to the audience. Um, a large number of people still on. That's pretty cool to see. It's, it's a holiday though. So we can actually keep going. Um, it's we president's could. day, but, yes. uh, but we'll, yeah. we'll cut people some slack. Uh, let's see what else we have. Ethan Aaron coming up in March and, uh, Tony Bear oh, yeah. as well. Right. So Tony yeah, Bear. Yeah. We have some we'll great guests. Those soon. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it should be good. Um, cool. Matt, have a great day. Go, go rest your voice. Take care. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thank Bye. You.